was reading this week Father Thomas Watson, and he wrote 300 years ago. He said, he said, God works strangely. Sometimes we do not understand what you permit, what you allow, what you plan. Because it certainly at times is not our plan. But as Isaiah said, your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. You have things in mind, Lord, that we know nothing about. Uh, some of us have little children that are just beginning to talk and just beginning to communicate and just beginning to reason. And we could no more expect them to understand what's going on in our lives and in the world well, we just don't expect it of them. They don't have the capacity. Well, in the same way, Lord, we, we are very, very finite. We are very, very limited. And to our perspective and to our approach to life, certain things ought to be done in a certain way. You don't always do it that way. Sometimes, as Watson said, your ways are past finding out. Uh, we, we can know you, but we can never comprehend you. We thank you that you are great. We thank you that you are greater than anything and everything. We thank you that the things that concern us and worry us do not worry you because you're in charge. Uh, your purposes are fixed. Your plan is the best plan. Your strategies are beyond our comprehension. But you are working your plan. It is the best plan. It is the plan that will bring you glory. It is the plan that is the best plan for us and for all the nations. We're grateful that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because you have worked in our lives and your spirit has drawn us to yourself. Because of what you've done, we now bow and say Jesus is Lord. That's the result of your good work in our lives. So Lord, the worries and the anxieties and the cares about our world, about our nation, about our lives, about our work, about our health, we just cast all of our anxiety upon you because you care for us. Sometimes it seems like the inmates are running the asylum, but they're never running the asylum. You run them, and you're in control, and you're in charge. And so we rest, and we bow, and we trust. It's good to be still and know that you are God. It's good to cease striving and know that you are God. So we commit ourselves to you again tonight. We pray that you will help us. We pray that you will um, wise us up. Keep us from stupid. Keep us from ruining our lives. Keep us from embarrassing ourselves and our families 
and the name of Christ. We have the potential to do great damage. We would ask for your mercy to restrain us and lead us in the right way. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes I get emails, and as you do, and every once in a while I get one that's a real keeper. And this came from Lou Spencer, who I think got it from Bob Morgan, and I see some other names on here that are in this room. But uh, this, this is an email that uh, is, is from a uh, piece that was written by uh, a woman named Melanie Phillips. And she is a um, Jewish woman who lives in England. Uh, she's written a book that I have not read, but I'm going to read it. It's called uh, London, A Stan. Uh, Mary and I were in England a couple of summers ago. And one of the things that I was really surprised by was the Muslim influence in London. The number of mosques, the number of Islamic people, Quite frankly, it was somewhat startling. And it, that, that is sort of a reflection of not just what's going on in England, but what's going on all over Europe. Uh, th this is a piece that she has written, and I, um, she's got some great insight about war and about um, clashing values of different cultures. And I want to use it as a um, kind of as a jumping off point uh, to get us into our discussion about the war that we're fighting. There is a war that goes on within. It's a spiritual battle. The principles are the same as any other kind of war. But this is a spiritual war. It is a war for our hearts. It's a war for our souls. But let's begin with this article from Melanie Phillips, uh, she says, in a recent op-ed piece in the Brussels newspaper De Standard, uh, the Dutch author Oscar van den Bugard, and aren't you glad that isn't your name? By the way, uh, van den Bugard is a self-declared humanist and apparently an advocate for the gay rights movement uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, and he is referring to an interview with a radical feminist. That's sort of setting this up. Van den Bugard says that to him, coping with the Islamization of Europe is like a process of mourning. Europe is becoming quickly, all of the indications are that Europe is once again going to come under Islamic control. It's just a matter of time because they love their affluence, they love their ease, they love their pleasures, they're not having children, because you see, children's, children get in the way of affluence and nice vacations and high incomes. So the Europeans are not having children. They're not, their birth rate will not reproduce themselves. But Islamic immigrants are having children. It's just a matter of time. Vanden Bogard says that to him, coping with the Islamization of Europe is like a process of mourning. He is overwhelmed by a feeling of sadness. Now catch this. I am not a warrior, he says, but who is? 
I have never learned to fight for my freedom. I was only good at enjoying it. That's priceless. Read that again, that last part. Yeah, I'll read it again. I am not a warrior, he says, but who is? I have never learned to fight for my freedom. I was only good at enjoying it. Now, that's true of a lot of people, not just in Europe, not just in London, but in this country. They love the freedom. They wouldn't lift their finger to defend it. But there are a lot of graves around the world. Iwo Jima, Dunkirk, Normandy, all, all across the battlefields, where some young boy, 18, 19, 20, you guys know the story, they were willing to give their lives and shed their blood and in some cases lose arms and legs horribly burned beyond recognition so that someone might enjoy freedom. Someone who was not willing to fight for it. Doesn't want to fight for it. She then goes on. That first paragraph's worth it right there, isn't it? That's pretty darn good. And then she mentions Tom Bethel, who some of you are familiar with. As Tom Bethel wrote in this month's American Spectator, just at the most basic level of demography, the secular humanist option is not working. Now, when we say secular humanist, what do we mean? We mean those who don't believe in God. They say there is no God, there is no absolute truth, there's no right or wrong. The typical secular humanists are political liberals. They have no base, they have no foundation, they have no moral standard, and we see this everywhere. And, and maybe you're uncomfortable because, oh, you know, you're getting into politics. I'm not getting into politics. I'm just getting into reality. This is where we are as a nation. You know, the sons of Issachar in First Chronicles 12, it says, were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. When you understand the times, you have discernment. When you know what your nation should do, you have vision. So... We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't put our heads in the sand. We've got to know what's going on. So, we're dealing with a lot of secular humanists. They are opposed to us, in case you haven't picked up on this. Because we believe in God, and we believe in truth, and we believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And they can't stand that. He says, but there is more to it, Bethel says, than the fact that non-religious people tend not to have as many children as religious people. Because many of them prefer to enjoy freedom rather than renounce it for the sake of children. It's the problem with children. They diminish your freedom. So some of you young guys in here, you know, I got on you a few weeks ago. Because at some point, you're going to have to grow up and you're going to have to commit and get a woman for life. Right? And you marry her. You marry her. And you marry her forever. That's what you do. And then you have kids. Have more than one. It'll be good for you. <laughs> and then you get a mortgage and you get bills and you get pains in your chest. It's really good stuff. <laughs> oh, and by the way, you'll grow up. Because you'll learn to be a servant. 
Each of my three kids, when they were born, it was very obvious to me they had no interest in serving me. <laughs> Secularists, Bethel says, it seems to me are also less keen on fighting. Since they not this is really good. Since they do not believe in an afterlife, this life is the only thing they have to lose. That's very significant. Hence, they will rather accept submission than fight. Like the Germanist, German feminist Broder referred to, they prefer to be raped than to resist. Bethel says, if faith collapses, civilization goes with it. Because the only people who will fight are those who believe that something is worth fighting for and something is worth dying for. That is the real cause, Melanie Phillips says, of the closing of civilization in Europe. Islamization is simply the consequence. The very word Islam means submission, and the secularists have submitted already. Many Europeans have already become Muslims, though they do not realize it or do not want to admit it. I found it interesting that, you know, they're always kidnapping reporters. Well, two of these guys were kidnapped, but they converted. That's what they said. But you got the sense they really didn't convert. They converted to save their lives. And we, you said, well, you're being hard on them. Yeah. Because do they have no principles on which to stand? Is there nothing in their life that they would die for? If you have nothing in your life worth dying for, you don't have much of a life. I thought we'd go light tonight, guys. <laughs> then she goes on, and she says, the crucial insight here is that only a strong indigenous faith has the capacity to resist Islamization. That is why the collapse of Christianity in Britain and Europe and its steady replacement by secularism is so catastrophic for the defense of the West. The useful idiots who believe that only a secular society can hold off the forces of irrational belief at the heart of the of the Islamic Jihad, have got this diametrically wrong. Secularization, that means no God, no truth. Secularization produces cultural enfeeblement because the pursuit of personal happiness trumps absolutely everything else. The here and now is all that matters. Dying for a cause, however noble, becomes an absolute no-no. It's better to be dimmy than dead, the view that has now effectively prevailed in Britain and Europe and here. She goes on and says, that is why the cultural cringe of the Church of England before the advance of both secularism and Islamism is such unmitigated disaster and why the Pope's recent intervention was so significant. 
the Pope just quoted from a book that was a history book, and they went crazy. Anyway, that is why those who sneer at President Bush's strong Christian faith are cultural lemmings. And that is why I, a British Jew, argue that it is vital that Britain and Europe re-Christianize if they are to have any chance of defending Western values. That's a brilliant statement. What was it that man said? I've never learned to fight for my freedom. I was only good at enjoying it. Now, I think Ted Haggard can make that statement. Interesting week. Because you're familiar with this. We heard this week of uh, a man who is a uh, pretty influential Christian leader. And he um, has a church in Colorado Springs, uh, membership of 14,000 Charismatic church, kind of an extreme charismatic church. And um, he, uh, as you know, there was a charge made that he had visited in a hotel room with a gay prostitute. It was denied. You know the story. Uh, But uh, methamphetamines, but didn't use them. Boy, that sounded really familiar, didn't it? Gosh, that was sad. And, and you know the whole story. And so now he's admitted to some things, was dismissed. And I commend his church for taking the steps and following the scriptures. Now, these are always unpleasant things, and they are very difficult things. Um, the first thing that comes up, and I heard it on a Christian television program last night as they were discussing this, And there's some guy, and he's interviewing this pastor and his wife. And this pastor didn't have a whole lot to say. And uh, whenever they ask him a question, he asks his wife what she thought. And so right there I know who runs that church. And, uh, And his wife was pretty articulate and had some things to say and, and, you know, and, and then she mentioned that the thing that we cannot do, though, the thing we absolutely cannot do is judge Ted Haggard. Well, that is the thing we're supposed to do. Because in the Word of God, when a Christian leader goes down, 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, if you read the context, it says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And then rebuke him in the presence of all that the rest may be fearful of sinning. doesn't mean that someone can't be forgiven. But it just means that we follow the word of God. Uh, the, the greatest sin that anyone can commit is to judge somebody in our culture. That's a greater sin than homosexuality. That's a greater sin than heterosexual adultery. That's a greater sin than child porn is to judge. And our screwed up, weak-kneed culture that doesn't know the word of God. God says if you're in leadership and you commit sin and you refuse to deal with it, you are to be publicly reprimanded. Now, I'm grateful that we are in a church that takes the Word of God seriously and doesn't worry about what people think or worry about lawsuits. 
We have leadership here that follows the word of God, and God will bless this congregation because our leaders are in submission to Christ. Any church that does that. Most church don't, churches don't have the guts. And some of you can get a little uncomfortable why are you naming this guy? Because he's in the papers, and everybody's talking about it. It, it is a tragedy beyond words. You, you, you just grieve for his wife and his kids. And the question always comes up when this happens, and this happens all the time, by the way. It happens constantly, pretty much on schedule. When I go in to speak in some area across the country, almost without exception, sometime during the weekend, it'll come up about a prominent pastor in the area who has just recently committed sexual immorality and had to step down. It's everywhere. I think a lot of these men who have high-profile positions, who have heard the gospel, and the gospel is the good news, that your sins can be forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I think a lot of them could say, with the gentleman who was speaking from a purely secular viewpoint, I think they could say with him, I have never learned to fight for my freedom. I was only good at enjoying it. Now, when these things happen, they should sober us. Because you see, we are all in a spiritual battle. The scriptures teach that when you get serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. Now, if you're just Joe, Texas churchgoer, and you go because your wife pressures you, and your grandpa was a preacher, and it's sort of the family thing to do, and then you go to Aunt Emma's after church and have fried chicken, and that's why you go to church, you don't have to worry. Because you're a non-entity when it comes to making a contribution in life that'll count for eternity. You don't have to worry about spiritual attacks because you have already been neutralized. You might make a good living, you might uh, give to the Red Cross, you might do all that, but when it comes to what counts for eternity, and there is a life after this, you've missed it. Now, you don't have to miss it because you can come to Christ and give him your life and ask him to come into your life and forgive your sin and make you a new creature, and he will do that. But short of that, you are wasting your life. When you get serious about Christ, that's when the enemy and his cohorts will get serious about you. And the goal is to now bring you down and discredit you and bring shame to the name of Christ and to your family. Just how it works. It was Howard Hendricks. And how long are we doing this study now? What, 13 years? 
It was a joke, guys. I was trying to lighten it, but it didn't work. I told, uh, it hasn't gone well today, just generally speaking. I think everyone really is kind of a little bit down here. Um, in, in the four or five years we've been doing this study, I referred to a study that Howard Hendricks did a number of years ago. And I'm going to refer to it again. Howard Hendricks interviewed 246 pastors, worship leaders, youth workers, missionaries. Why did he interview them? Because they all had gotten involved in sexual immorality within two years of each other. Now, I went to seminary with some of these guys. I know some of these guys that are pastors in this area and around the country. 246 guys got involved in sexual immorality within two years of each other. That's a lot of guys. When he interviewed them, he found four things running through their life. Because, see, when anything happens like with Haggard or these guys, the first thing that comes into our mind is, how could that happen? It's very simple. You quit fighting. You don't fight the battle. You don't fight temptation. You give in to it. You pursue it, and you begin living a double life, which is a very exhausting way to live life. And it's a very foolish way, and it's a very stupid way, as we're doing this study on snapshots of stupid. This is stupid. Because the scriptures say, you can be sure that your sin will find you out. If you think you can live one way in public as a Christian, as a committed Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian, if you think you can pull that off with the outward exterior, yet at the same time pursuing and rationalizing and justifying any kind of sin in your life habitually and practicing it and going after it and seeking it and not fighting it, if you think you can pull that off, you've been conned. And you verge on insanity. Because you will be found out. But apparently Haggard thought he could pull it off. I mean, I'm, I don't know what was in his head. He's not the first. He's just the latest. So the 246 men, when Dr. Hendricks interviewed him, and the reason this is significant is that this could happen to any of us in this room. The other reason it's significant is that with this many guys, somebody is about to go down. I'm telling you, somebody is about, someone's screwing around in here. Just on the law of averages. I, you know what I figure? I, I, I figure for every hundred guys I speak to, yeah, and I, can't, I have never done a statistic thing, but it just kind of seems to work out this way. It seems to me that for about every hundred guys, out of every hundred guys, somewhere between three to five guys are going to go off the deep end and get involved in sexual immorality in the next five years. That's just kind of what I figure, rule of thumb. And one of them could be me. Please understand that. I mean, I'm, hey, I'm telling you. It could be me. It could be Chuck. It could be you. Any of us. Because we're all deeply flawed. And none of us, none of us have got it together. We're, we're, we're beset, as Hebrews says, we're beset with weaknesses. I scare myself to death. Don't you? 
The 246 guys, let me just give this to you real quick. When Dr. Hendricks interviewed them, hey, and you know what? When these guys were going to seminary, these guys, these guys are teaching the Word of God. These guys don't have doctrinal issues. These guys believe the Word of God. They got the virgin birth down. They're not debating whether homosexuals should be married. They, they understand that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. They got, they, they got the doctrine down. That's not the issue with these guys. They never, ever thought when they were young men going into ministry and preparing, they never thought they were going to wind up in sexual immorality, but they did. Dr. Hendricks interviewed them, found four things. Number one, you might want to jot these down. You may not. It's up to you. There's no pressure. Now there is pressure because if you don't, everyone's going to think you're crazy and you're very proud. But don't worry. Just worry about yourself. Uh, the reason I have not only written them down but memorized them is because I go over these all the time to check myself and to catch myself. Here's the first one. They had no personal time in the Word of God. So wait a minute, they were pastors. I know they were pastors. But the only time they'd open a Bible was up front, up here on Sundays, in front of everybody where everybody could see them. They quit being private worshipers. They quit feeding on the word of God. You've heard this verse a thousand times. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hey, guys, you can't live without this book. Why do we have so many Bible studies around here? Because you can't live without this book. Why do we have so many restaurants in Dallas? Because you got to eat to live. Same reason we have Bible studies. You got to eat food for your physical body. You got to be in the Word of God to have food and minerals and supplements and vitamins for your inner man. You can't live, listen. You can't, you can't fight sexual temptation if you're malnourished, can you? I've struggled for years with anorexia. And I'm doing a lot better. (laughs) Not physical anorexia. Spiritual anorexia. Anorexia really is nothing to to joke around about. Some of you, you have daughters or maybe your wives have dealt with this. Uh, Gal looks great. She looks fine. But to her, for some reason, she looks in the mirror and she thinks she's overweight. So what do these gals do? Well, they just begin to starve themselves. They don't eat. We never heard of anorexia until Karen Carpenter died. You old guys know what I'm talking about. Gifted gal, good-looking gal. Just Karen Carpenter died. She died. When was she? Twenty-some. She she starved herself to death. Real attractive gal. She thought she was grossly overweight. There was something wrong in here that how she viewed herself. See, that can happen in the Christian life. You can just starve yourself with the Word of God. You say, well, Steve, I I believe in the Word of God. Great, good. Satan doesn't care if you revere the Word of God. He just doesn't want you in the Word of God. He doesn't care if you've got a big Bible on your shelf. He just doesn't want it in your heart. So once again, I've, I've 
mention this, and it remains to be true. I, I, I can pick up a sports page. I can pick up, you know, National Geographic. I can pick up anything to read. I get no resistance. I go to pick up this book. I get resistance. I get distracted. Oh, I'll read it tonight before I go to bed, and I'm too tired. Oh, I'll read it in the morning, and I oversleep. I, why is that? Well, it's not coincidence. These guys that went down used to be in the Word of God, but they quit. Why'd they quit? They just up one day and said, oh, I'm not going to read the Scriptures anymore. No, are you kidding? I think they got real busy. Just real busy. Going to meetings, meeting with people, doing stuff that they, you know, it's just part of life. But what happened was the most important thing got crowded out in their life. All, everyone he talked to, that had happened to. The Word of God was no longer a priority in their lives. Psalm 119 says, Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. You take the word out of your life and you have absolutely nothing to fight with. Number two, they had no personal accountability to anybody. None of us like to be accountable. None of us like, I, I heard Chuck one time say that accountability is a willingness to explain your actions. That's about as good as I've ever heard on accountability. We all got to have it. None of us want it. It's easy to talk about it. It's hard to do. And what our tendency is, is to set ourselves up that nobody can get close now, you know, what are you going to do? Be accountable to 9,000 people? No. But there have got to be some people in your life that can get close to you and just ask some penetrating questions that you don't want to answer, perhaps. But see, accountability is a willingness to explain because you're not hiding anything. See, when you're hiding, you don't want to explain. When you're hiding, you don't want anybody to ask, do you? Now, how do you think Haggard was doing on this? I'll tell you. Or, or the, other, or the other 246 guys. And I'm not taking pot shots. I'm just trying to explain because we're, everyone's so shocked and we're standing, how this happens. This is how it happens. And it can, listen, it's happened to better men than me. And it's happened to better men than you. We are not exempt. So there needs to be someone in your life, in my life, that can ask me anything. And I know them, and I have a relationship with them, and I trust them. Now, here's what you got to decide, okay? you got to decide up front that you're not going to lie. You've got to decide up front that you are going to be brutally honest. Honest to the point of being uncomfortable if you need to be. That's how deeply you are willing to fight to honor Christ with your life. So you don't cover up and you don't lie. You're accountable. None of these 246 guys, none of them had it. They set themselves up so nobody could get close. Nobody. Number three, 90% of the 246 men who got involved in sexual immorality, 90% of them uh, fell by counseling women. And you say, well, I don't counsel women. I'm not a pastor. Yeah, but you work with women. 
What happened to these guys was that they, you know, here's what happens. And we're not even talking, we're talking here heterosexual adultery. What happens is, with a pastor is, some gal comes in and, you know, he starts counseling. And, and this, is, this is tricky stuff. And basically, what you got to do when you're pastoring, unless, and, we gotta have, and we've got guys here and we have pastors who specialize in counseling. Well, they have got built-in protections in their daily lives and in their daily conduct of their ministries to protect themselves. Um, for most pastors, or a lot of pastors, uh, forget most When I pastored, here's what I did. I would meet with a woman one time, and then I'd never meet with her again. I'd refer her to someone else. And, and I had a small little church. Um, and I didn't, we didn't have a pastor or counseling. So I, was a, I got some people mad at me. They said, Steve, we got women in the church that are hurting in there. Their husbands left them, and they're just really wounded, and you won't meet with her again? I mean, that's, you're not much of a shepherd. We don't understand that, Steve. I mean, the scriptures say that the older men are to teach the younger women. <laughs> Actually, the Bible doesn't say that, does it? Who is to teach the younger women? The older women. I am not an older woman. Now, in New York City, I could declare myself an older woman. I just read that yesterday. Pretty sad, isn't it? I'm not an older woman. Now, if I should be spending time, it would seem to me it ought to be with younger men. Just a protection. So I'd have gals come in, and they're hurting, and you know what I'd do? I'd hook them up with an older gal in the church, mature in Christ, meet with them, encourage them. That's what they needed. See, what happens is when, you're count, when you spend time with them, what happens is before a guy ever goes down emotion, uh, sexually, he first goes emotionally. And, you know, marriages have good times and, and hard times. And in the middle of a hard time, or maybe you and your wife aren't communicating real well, and this gal comes along, and, you know, you're attracted to her, and then, oh, boom, emotionally. That can happen at your work. J. Vernon McGee used to say that when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. Because it happens in so many choirs. Some guy is sitting next to some gal. And they're both emotionally hurting. And they connect in that hour and a half every week. And before you know it, boom. Isn't that amazing? Number four, Dr. Hendricks, when he interviewed them, Every man said, I thought it would never happen to me. Isn't that interesting? See, if you think it can happen to you, it very well could happen to you. Because the scriptures tell us that pride goes before the fall. What was it that Paul said to Timothy? 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to your life. And to your doctrine, to what you believe. These guys were good on doctrine. These guys were solid on the scriptures. These guys would get an A in systematic theology. They knew their Bibles, but they didn't pay close attention to their 
lives. In Psalm 141, you guys still with me? In Psalm 141, and, and Psalm 140 and 141 really go together. They, when you read them, they're a unit. But in the middle of Psalm 141, and, and, and what's going on here is that David is asking God to protect him from the wicked and his enemies and those who are trying to lay a trap for him. Uh, if you look at the end of 141 in verse 10, he says, Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. It's a prayer in these two psalms of protection and for God to look out for him and to take care of him. But there's something else that's going on in here. He's praying that God would do a work in his heart. Now, you say, now, when did this happen in David's life? Well, we're not sure. It could have happened early. It could have happened later. We, we, we can't nail it down. We just know that he's got enemies. David had enemies early, and he had enemies late. Early on, it was Saul. Later on, it was one of his boys, Absalom, that rebelled against him and tried to rip the kingdom from him. So we don't know the time. But that really isn't critical. In Psalm 141, beginning with verse 1, he's crying out to God, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. He's in trouble. He's desperate. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. I need you to hear me, Lord, please. This is critical. This isn't a now I lay me down to sleep prayer. This isn't a bless this food to our bodies prayer. This is desperate. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands is the evening offering. Uh, now note what he says in verse 3. Set a guard O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Help me to be careful who I call on my telephone. So Haggard saw an ad for a guy who's a gay prostitute. And he picks up the phone and he calls the guy. How are you doing with your lips and how are you doing with your mouth? Just ask it. Anything today that you said that you ought to be ashamed of? Anybody you talked to this week who you shouldn't have talked to? You say, well, this is kind of uncomfortable. Good. Good. Because some of us in here are acting like idiots. And we're about ready to drive off the cliff and ruin our lives and bring shame to the name of Christ and the church of Christ and our own families and our children. Now look at verse 4. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. There there is pleasure in sin for a, a short time. And what does he ask? Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness. There's a difference between falling into sin and running to sin. See, sometimes we fall into it and go, gosh, what the heck did I do here? And we, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. You talk to your wife, honey, I can't believe I did the, whatever. Is there anybody you ever talked to, anybody you ever come clean with? Is there? 
We all need that in our lives. You ever slip up on the road? Tell somebody you slipped up. It's a protection. The tendency is to cover it. Tell somebody who you can trust, who's not going to broadcast it all over town and put it on the Internet. You've got to use your head here who you talk to. See, did you see that? To practice deeds of wickedness. To practice. So what are you practicing in your life? Did your mother make you practice the piano? Most of us just wore them down and they gave up. But some of you guys were gifted and stayed with it. Man, it's great what you can do. But see, you, you don't get that proficient by not practicing. Now, you know what? When you're trying to give a public exterior of being a Christian man or a Christian leader, and you got stuff underneath the surface that you're hiding, you're practicing at deception. And it's going to come out. See, what you've got in verse 4. All right, here's the five bullets tonight. Number one. In verse 4 of Psalm 141, you have a prayer for the strength to fight. Let me say that again. You've got a prayer for the strength to fight. What did this guy say? What did this, this secular humanist say? I've never learned to fight for my freedom. Hey, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Jesus has set us free from sin and from the power of sin. We've been forgiven of sin, but he's also broken the power of sin in our lives. But we have to pray for the strength to fight because it's so easy just to give in. It's a lot easier to give in than it is to fight because fighting is exhausting. And especially if there's a history, if there's habitual sin and it has taken a portion of your life it's exhausting to fight. It gets old fighting that. If you if you got a if you got a quick temper, it's it gets old fighting that. You just you just wish it wasn't there, but it is there. So what do you do? Just give up? Uh, I was looking, Lou. Thanks. That helps me. Um, my friend Stu Weber. Some of you read Stu's books. He's a pastor in Oregon. Great guy. Just a. Just a great guy. On the board down at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Stu wrote a book called Tender Warrior, and that describes Stu. Stu was special forces in Vietnam. Stu's an interesting guy. I always, when I introduce Stu, I say, you know, Stu knows 17 different ways to kill you. And he does. And he could. But Stu's a real interesting guy because he is a warrior, but uh, he's also very relational. It take, it Stu can walk in the room about 15 minutes. He can pick out the guy with a broken heart. It's a real combination. He's a warrior. He's a fighter. He's a soldier. But the guy is extremely relational. He's got a very tender heart. Man's man. Uh, Stu has a temper. Uh, it, 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 and you don't ever want it to come out. And, and he'll tell you this. Uh, Stu would go to his boys' basketball games. And they had to assign an elder to go with him. 
And it embarrassed him. He was ashamed. But he said, he said, Steve, I'd be sitting there watching the game, and somebody would just, he'd keep hacking my boy. Well, the next thing I knew, I was out on the floor <laughs> with my AK-47. I mean, you know. And Stu, I really, I mean, he just felt terrible about it. And he said, we tried different things, and my wife got me uh, a headset with a CD player to listen to praise music when I'm at the game. <laughs> and it didn't work. And... I mean, it was, it was really becoming a problem. Oh, there's our pastor out there on the floor. It, it was a grievous thing for Stu. And, and you know what? One, one of his friends said, hey, Stu, you know what? I'm just going to, why don't I just go with you to the games? And, and they'd been friends for years. And Stu said, you know, Steve, what, you know what Denny would do? He, he knew me so well. He could tell. He could see it coming. And what do you do? He'd just reach over. And he just put his hand on my knee. Easy, big fella. <laughs> and, and then he helped him. But you know what? It took him years and years and years. What do you do? You just, you just give in? No. You keep fighting. You cannot stop battling sin in your heart and in your life. Okay. Here's number two. Psalm 141, verse 5, is a prayer for help in the fight. Let me say that again. It's a prayer for help in the fight. Verse 5 says, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It's oil on my head. We're not talking pins oil here. When he says it's oil on my head, back then that was a good thing. Anointing oil. Let the righteous, hey, Lord, help me. Let, send one of your guys to help me. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. You know what he's asking for? He's asking for someone to help him to remain accountable so he can fight sin and not give up. Hey, pal, you know what? I love you. We're friends. You can't, I need someone to put, my hand on, put their hand on my knee and squeeze a little bit. Hey, hey, easy. Easy. Is this making sense? He's asking that God would do that. A prayer for help in the battle. I've said it before. You can't live the Christian life by yourself. Can you? The enemy wants us to think we can, but we can't. Two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself. At least not yet. <laughs> That'll probably change here before long. You can't live the Christian life by yourself. Two are stronger than one. Number three. We're going to pop over here to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. But let me give you number three. A commitment to engage my mind in the fight. You got to make that commitment. You got to commit to engage your mind in the fight. Go to Romans chapter 12. We're going to go camp in Romans for a little bit. See, we're asking, how do I keep this from happening to me? All right? You got to kick in your mind, not just your feelings, not just your emotions. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. When you're calling prostitutes, 
you are not presenting your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God, are you? And any of us have the potential. So we're not just pointing fingers. We're looking to ourselves here. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, catch this, by the renewing of your mind. The way that you control your body and what you do with your body begins with what you do with your mind. The mind is critical. Someone has said the mind is the most important sexual organ. Because the mind is the seat. The mind and the heart are the control center. You've heard it a thousand times. Garbage in, garbage out. So what we need to do after we come to Christ, we have to engage our minds. Once again, Psalm 119. Thy word I have hid in my heart. And your mind is included in the heart. The heart is you. It's your mind, soul, emotions, will. Thy word I have hid in my heart, in my mind, that I may not sin against thee. You put the word of God in your mind and it transforms you. Instead of being conformed to the world, you put the word of God. And there's power in the word of God. So if you struggle, if you struggle with lust, there are verses that you ought to put into your mind. You ought to memorize them. And you ought to put them on post-it notes. And, And put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it in your car. On the dash. And as you're going through the day, you see those verses and you, and you put the verses in your mind. And what that helps you do, it gives you the word of God is powerful. And it gives you something to put in your mind to fight back temptation. But if you just let your mind go, and if you just let your mind wander, and if you just let yourself fantasize, you're dead meat, man. You're done. You're finished. You're cooked. So we got to fight with our minds. Number four, there has to be a commitment to get aggressive in the fight. A commitment to get aggressive in the fight. Uh, let's go to Romans 6. You guys still with me? Okay. So we just can't be passive. If we want to overcome sin, if we if we want to experience maturity and growth in our lives. And you know what? Listen. Hey, guys, you know what? We're all screwed up. Do you know that? There was this book out 30 years ago, I'm Okay, You're Okay. You remember that book? Someday I'm going to write a book called I'm Screwed Up, You're Screwed Up. Because we're all screwed up. All of us. We all got our own issues. We all have our own stuff. We all have our own junk. We all have our own propensities and our weaknesses. But there has to be... See, when you don't get aggressive in the fight, when you don't get aggressive, you're going to pay the price. There has to be a commitment to get aggressive. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Well, I'll just keep sinning and then there'll be more grace. No, you don't do that. You get aggressive against sin. Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now catch this. Knowing this, 
Knowing what? That our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We used to be slaves. We had to sin. Sin was this big, giant, uh, huge, eight-foot, two-inch, incredible hulk on steroids that was in our lives, and we had to do what he said. That was sin. And we were slaves to this incredible hope. But when Jesus came into our lives, he not only forgave us of our sin, he broke the power of sin. And that incredible hope, you know what's happened to him? He's still around. But he's become a, uh, a weak, sick, malnourished old man in a wheelchair with an IV and he trembles. That's sin now in your life. You say, well, I don't have to be a slave to that guy. You're right. Christ has set you free. But here's what you got to do. You got to decide every day and every hour of your life, because that guy's always with you, you got to decide if you're going to feed him or not. And sometimes we want to feed him. No, you got to starve him. You got to starve that sucker. You don't feed him, you don't feel sorry for him, you, f- you starve him. Uh, look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Now catch this. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You say, well, I have to. No, you don't. No, you don't. Well, I can't stop. You can stop. The power of Christ is within you. You may have to get some help. You might have to be willing to do what the guy did in Psalm 141. Lord, give me one of your guys. I need somebody. I need to talk to somebody that will help me stop. I need someone to put their hand on my knee. See, do you want it that bad? Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Now, I don't mean... Hey, 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 I'm not dismissing that this is hard. This is hard. We're going to fight this for the rest of our life. But you can't quit fighting. You stay after it. You say, I was defeated last week. You were defeated. Get back up, get under the blood of Christ, and say, Lord Jesus, I need your strength. And get back in it. 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, now catch this, catch this, you became obedient from the heart. There you go. To that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You know what the issue is? When guys fall into this stuff, and we read about these things, and what guys are doing in their hidden lives, you know what? They're obedient up front. They're obedient on Christian TV. They're obedient when they write books, but they're not obedient from the heart. And that's what Christ is looking for. Right? You can't spin him. You can't con him. And he's looking at our hearts. And when you're broken, you say, Lord Jesus, I'm out of strength and I'm weary and I'm so tired and I'm embarrassed and ashamed. He knows our hearts. He understands our hearts from afar. He's not against us. He's for us. He's not trying to load you down. He just wants honesty. That's all he wants, guys. But we can't keep screwing around and playing with dynamite and think, 
our lives aren't going to blow up. I got to show you something in Romans 7. Flip over to Romans 7 because once again, we get back to the mind. And, and uh, gosh, I, I'm just, I'm highlighting stuff here. Actually, actually, I'm in Romans 8. He says in verse 6 For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Um, look at down in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Hey, do you struggle? Do you struggle with homosexuality? Hey, listen, let's just, let's just be honest here. A lot of guys that struggle with homosexuality were molested when they were young boys. Not always, but a whole bunch of times, that's what's happened. Hey, you couldn't help that. That happened to you. And you say, well, see, that hasn't happened to me. Well, that's the grace of God. Some guys, it happened. Somebody was a predator and took advantage of it. And see what that does with a kid? Screws up his mind and screws up his thinking. And the devil gets in there and starts working on you. And kids start saying stuff. And, you know, it's just twisted and it's godless. And it's a, it's a horrible thing. So, so, so what do you do with that? Well, you know what? You've got to be honest about it. I, I, deal, I deal with that. There's a reason you deal with that, okay? Or guys, that you, you know, it, it's the porn stuff, and you're out on the road, and you're going to strip clubs and this stuff, and you think no one's going to find it. They're going to find it. Well, that's your issue. Or uh, There's all kinds of issues. What's that? Listen, listen, guys. What's happening is the enemy, where he comes after us, is sexually because we're sexual beings, and we have a sexual drive. And we've got to learn to let Christ drive it. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy. It's hard. It's a struggle. It's a fight. You have your ups. You have your downs. But you don't quit fighting. Now watch this. So then, brother, we, brethren, we're under obligation. Verse 12. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now watch this. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So see, well, Steve, you know what happens? It's when I go on the road and, and I get in those hotel rooms. Okay, well, you got to put that to death. Well, I don't know how to do that. Well, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Before you take another trip, you go talk to someone you can trust and say, listen, i got to come clean with you. When I go on the road, I get in those hotel rooms, and that's when I go down. Do you really want to kill that? All right, then you go connect with someone you can trust. And you say, here's what I deal with, and here's what I struggle with, and you tell them. And you know what you do? You put that to death. You're going to kill it. You're not going to kill it by yourself. See, the question is, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want to deal with that? Hey, guys, this is not an ice cream social at the Methodist church. <laughs> we're, talking about, we're talking about eternity. We're talking about lives. We're talking about wives. We're talking about kids. We're talking about trust. We're talking about purity. We're talking about the blessing of God. How badly do you want the blessing of God in your life? Well, see, I've always enjoyed my freedom in Christ. Great. You, know, you need to learn how to fight for it. Dick Butkus, number 51. Chicago Bears, Soldier Field, 17 degrees, playing the Packers. 
You've seen the highlight film. That guy was out of his mind. And you've, you've seen it. You can watch NFL Classic. They still play it. And there he is. He's right up between that guard and that center. I mean, he's spitting at the quarterback. The guy was just an animal. And he's just, he's just, he's just right there. And you've seen it. And so they're going to get butt-kissed. So what do they do? They call a trap. Well, a trap is that guard... That, that, that guard is, I don't even know if I can get down anymore. That, that, guard, that guard is in their stance, and what that guard's going to do is step. And you see, the play is going to go this way. So that guard is down, and that guard steps and takes off. All right? That leaves an opening. So Butkus is right there. The guy steps. He steps, and he goes that way. Well, there's a hole. There's my opening. He steps in. It's called a trap. Because the other guard over here, he's coming right down the line. So what do you do? What does Butkus do? He knows what's going on. He steps. He sees that sucker coming. He steps. He hits that sucker right in the chops. He's got a fullback coming at him. He uppercuts that sucker. Rips out his heart while it's still beating. <laughs> Spins, turns, reaches out, grabs that back. Takes the sucker down, hits him in the groin. Spits in his eye. Tyson's his ear. <laughs> he was crazy. Now, that's what we have to do with sexual temptation. Butkus didn't want to tackle the back. He wanted to kill him. So what, what do we do often as Christian men? We get sexually tempted. And instead of Butkus, we're the Pillsbury Doughboy. He, <laughs> 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 Pillsbury Bulldog, they don't take on fullbacks. They don't hit pulling guard. I, I can't help it. I can't help myself. You can help it. Christ lives in you. You've got the word of God. You've got the spirit. How bad do you want it? I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying it's not tough. I'm not saying you've had years of habit. I'm saying Christ has broken the power of sin. How badly do you want it appropriated in your life? It takes brutal honesty. And it separates the men from the boys. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Haggard had all kinds of opportunities to be brutally honest. You say, you're coming down on this guy. I kind of am. I kind of am because he knew better. And I'm not trying to kick a guy while he's down. But I'm going to tell you something. He wishes somebody had gotten in his face right now. He wishes it deeply and terribly. And I heard him last night saying, oh, he needs to be restored. We're going to restore him. Hey, listen, Spurgeon said a man in ministry who falls should not be restored until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. You don't just put a guy back in. Now, we can walk out of here 
And if there are issues in your life and my life and we don't deal with it, let me tell you something. You're stupid. You're stupid. And you're asking for it. But Jesus gives us another way. He gives us a way of forgiveness. He gives us a way of freedom. And many of us in here enjoy our freedom in Christ, but we have to learn to fight for it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This make sense? Okay. So we bow before you, Lord Jesus, and um, I, I, hey, I, we, we, we ask you that you'd protect us from ourselves. This is hard stuff. This stuff is everywhere. It's around us. It's everywhere. It's encouraged. We've all seen lives and marriages and, and families that have been broken and devastated. This enemy is like a roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Lion of Judah. Would you give us um, a great desire to step up and be honest to prevent this kind of thing from happening to us? And some of us, Lord, are thinking, I, I'm sure there are guys in here thinking, I, I can't do that because it's gone so far. Well, that's the lie of the enemy. Well, there'll be consequences. There probably will be consequences. There's forgiveness. There'll be some consequences, but the consequences are better handled now than a year down the road because they'll be worse. This has got to be taken on now. Thank you for forgiveness and mercy and kindness. Thank you for the church where there is healing and there's understanding. And even when a leader is publicly reprimanded, it's for their good and for the good of the body of Christ. We follow your instructions, Lord. Deal with each of us in the way that is appropriate by your spirit, we pray. And keep us smart and keep us stupid. Keep us stupid when it comes to evil, that we won't get near it, that we won't pursue it, that we won't be curious about it. Keep us stupid in the sense that there's not a curiosity that we feed. Keep us, keep us smart in the scriptures, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.